everyone, and welcome to the show. This is episode number 29 of Pop Culturally Deprived, and today we're going to be talking about Pretty in Pink on your Did You Feel It in Your Knees podcast. I'm Mandy Kay. And I'm Matthew Vos. Today's guest is Amy Jo Cousins, who writes contemporary romance and erotica about smart, flawed people searching for what they need in life and in love. AJ and I met on Twitter several years back during weekly live tweets of the West Wing under the hashtag West Wing Club. I ended up never having enough time to watch, but we remained friends thanks to our mutual love of romance. Welcome to the show, AJ. Thank you so much for having me. I uh, am really looking forward to talking about Pretty in Pink because it is one of my favorite John Hughes movies, even though as I was rewatching it for the 20th maybe time for this show, I realized <laughs> that I'm a lot more critical about it now at 45 than I was when I saw it mm-hmm. in the 80s when I was in high school. Um, so it's been really interesting to see how my perspective has changed. And I think a lot of that comes from having been a romance novelist for the past, ooh, coming up on 15 years now. Uh, my writing and the learning that I've done from other authors and editors in my genre has really changed my perspective on a lot of the ways that we portray relationships uh, historically and today. And it's really interesting to me to see how different my opinion of the romance of this movie is now than it was all that time ago. Yeah, that's interesting. When you think about romance, you just kind of mush everything together and you don't really think about how it's changed over the years. So that's that's a cool perspective to have. Yes. Well, we talk with romance novels a lot because the change is so drastic from earlier days uh, with a lot of rape and romance and not necessarily a lot of agency for the heroines and the transition over 30 or 40 years of people writing to today's romances, which tend to be very different from what was uh, being published in the 70s and 80s. And there's a lot more focus on agency and consent these days than there was in the past. So watching Pretty in Pink Mm. with my changed perspective as a longtime romance novelist definitely influenced my opinion of the movie. I'm so glad I saw it when I didn't know any better because I was able to (laughs) I was able to love it uncritically as a teenager and now get to still enjoy it but think a lot uh, more intelligently about it as an adult. Right. Okay. Well, I look forward to having this conversation with you. Mandy, I think we will know the answer from previous episodes, but how come you never saw Pretty in Pink? Because I'm me, okay? (laughs) 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 Because uh, it was John Hughes, it was in the 80s. Um, By now, if you've been listening to our show, you know that I grew up in a very conservative household, so I didn't watch a lot of TV Um, back then and you know this was a teen movie in the 80s so it was well over my head because I mean I was born in the 80s and by the time I was old enough and able to watch movies like this I have to fall back on my standard answer it was an old movie and I wasn't interested (laughs) (laughs) Um, so you know it's that's why there are so many 80s movies and John Hughes movies on the giant list of things Mandy has never seen. So never fear. This is not the first John Hughes movie we've done on the show, nor will it be the last. Mm. <laughs> and some of them hold up a lot better than others do. So I'm sure you've watched some that did not. 
I don't think I've gotten to any of the super bad ones yet. Ah, I mean, okay. I, I, I did hate Ferris Bueller. I'll just say that. But um, <laughs> we, we haven't done 16 Candles. And actually, that's in large part because you and Sherry assured me that it did not age well. Not and at so all. I keep putting that one off. And that's why we picked this one first. <laughs> this is definitely way better. Um, that that movie, as much as I remember, again, loving it at the time when I watch it now, I cringe. Okay. Well, before we get into the conversation, I'm going to give a little bit of history of the film. And uh, when I say little bit, I do mean little bit. This, this one, I actually had a hard time finding as much information on this one as I do on others. Um, so I was a little bit surprised by that. Interesting. Pretty in Pink is an 80s teen rom-com directed by Howard Deutsch and written by John Hughes, and it debuted on February 28, 1986. With a $9 million budget, it grossed over $40 million, making it the 22nd highest grossing film in 1986. This was Hughes' final collaboration with leading lady Molly Ringwald, though she almost didn't get the role that was written for her. Deutsch wanted Jennifer Beals. In another universe, we may have had Charlie Sheen play Blaine and Robert Downey Jr. play Ducky. Ultimately, those roles went to Andrew McCarthy and John Cryer. And if you haven't seen this movie, I am going to steal the brief synopsis directly from IMDb, where they wrote, A poor girl must choose between the affections of her doting childhood sweetheart and a rich but sensitive playboy. And honestly, I, I'm not really sure that's what this movie is about, to tell you the truth. Mm. <laughs> I, I mean... That's one way of looking at it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess that that's like the tiniest piece, except she was never choosing between <laughs> Ducky right. and Blaine because Ducky was never a choice for her. So Exactly. He's not a doting friend so much as a borderline stalker. And that rich, <laughs> that rich playboy wasn't particularly sensitive either. <laughs> Pretty much a brick of insensitivity. Oh, I didn't think so. I liked Blaine. I kind of feel like Blaine was the best character in the whole movie. Well, aside, apart from Iona. Iona is definitely. I think Blaine was the, the best teenager in the movie. If you compare him to James Spader, then yeah, he's sensitive. He's <laughs> weepy and delicate. And <laughs> but he's such a gaslighter. I don't, we don't need to jump into it right here, but he constantly lies to her about what he's done. He says, mm -hmm. I, you didn't believe in me. I never stopped believing in you. And that's blatantly not true. I mean, that's not even remotely <laughs> right. what happened. So I think because, because he speaks softly and sort of tucks in his shoulders and ducks his head a lot and looks down and doesn't sort of glare in her face the way the other guys in the film do, that he comes across as sensitive. But the first thing he does is take her into an environment where he knows people are going to be mean to her. The first person who talks to her at that party is hideous. The next person who talks to her at that party is hideous. The third person who talks to her is hideous. And he just sits there and eventually sticks up for her a little bit. But he's not nice. If he were nice, he would say, ah, this is a horrible place for you to be. And I've brought you here. Let's go. Ah, I have, mm. I have yeah. clearly have lingering resentment <laughs> about playing. Okay. <laughs> okay. So just hold on to the soapbox. It sounds like you might need it later. So. <laughs> yes, um, we we will definitely pull it back out. I promise. No um, worries. I have one. I have one myself. Don't worry. <laughs> um, but before we get into deep, let's tell everybody how we watched it, so that if they haven't seen it and would like to watch it, they know where it's available. Uh, in the UK, it wasn't on any streaming services, so I watched it on Sky Cinema. And I rented it on Amazon. 
because I used to own the VHS tape, but apparently VHS tapes are no longer a thing, so <laughs> I don't even know where mine is. But yes, you can rent it on Amazon. Okay. It is also available on Amazon Prime and Hulu in the United States, so I got to pick because I am an entertainment glutton and pay for all of those stupid services. <laughs> <laughs> so getting into it, Mandy, when you sat down to watch this, what were your expectations for the film? I thought I would like it. I, I certainly didn't think I would love it, but I thought it would be a fun teenage movie about, you know, girl meets boy, girl falls in love with boy, there's some sort of conflict, and then they end up happily ever after. And generally, I am predisposed to enjoy those kinds of movies. Nice. We know some of this, but the cast and some of the, the crew for this film are... They're, they're pretty big people in Hollywood. So what's your previous experience of John Hughes, Molly Ringwald, Annie Potts, John Cryer, and James Spader? Uh, well, we've been through John Hughes before, if you listen to the Ferris Bueller episode. So obviously, I can add Ferris Bueller to that list now. And also, mm-hmm. you know, Breakfast Club, are those two are the only two, like, Brat Pack movies that he's super famous for that I'm familiar with, um, and now Pretty in Pink. And then some of the surprising movies that he's done, um, he did Home Alone, he did Beethoven, and he did Made in Manhattan. And so I, um, I have seen those movies, having had no idea that they were John Hughes movies, and they mm. don't resemble a John Hughes movie in any shape, form, or fashion, which is fine. Molly Ringwald, uh, I knew her from The Breakfast Club. And I always knew she was kind of like the 80s darling, even though I wasn't super familiar with her actually being in these movies. And then she was the mom on The Secret Life of the American Teenager, which was an awful, awful TV show on ABC Family that everybody was really obsessed with. Okay. (laughs) I have not heard of that one. Uh, It was on, you know, years ago. Um, And it was... It was awful. It was the show that gave uh, Shailene Woodley her start, too. So Okay. Yeah, it was terrible. Terrible, you guys. <laughs> it's about a 15-year-old girl who gets pregnant and has the baby and then her experience in high school. And Molly Ringwald wow. is her mom. Uh-huh. Uh, John Cryer, I only know him from Two and a Half Men. He's always, always, always going to be that guy from Two and a Half Men for me. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Uh, James Spader. I am familiar with him in a larger sense of just kind of being aware that he is a thing. I think he may have been on Allie McBeal at some point, yes. but I'm not sure about that. Or was it Boston Legal or both? Boston Legal with uh, William Shatner. Shatner. And oh. ha- half, half the cast on that are previous Star Trek people. <laughs> That's <laughs> um, basically what made me watch it. And then I realized it's not my kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, but but what I really really know James Fader from is the movie Secretary. Uh-huh. With Maggie Gyllenhaal. Yep. Mm. yep. And um, it that, that movie made me appreciate James Fader a lot. And and of course, he played Ultron in Age of Ultron, but I always forget that until Matthew reminds me oh that there were people <laughs> in Pretty in Pink who were in the Avengers. And I'm like, what? <laughs> he made a movie in the 80s. I think it's a Steven Soderbergh film that James Spader did called Sex, Lies, and Videotape. That was mm. one I, for me at the age, I think I was 18 when I saw it. And it was just eye-opening because it was very sexual and open and lots of talking about sex and and intimate conversations it was fascinating so james spader in my head was that guy way more than i remembered him even from pretty in pink for a long time Mm. okay i have actually heard of that movie 
I've not seen it, but I've heard of not it. Not seen it, but yeah. <laughs> I haven't seen it since probably the 90s. I should watch. I wonder if it holds up. It might. It was weird. <laughs> weird movies sometimes hold up better. It's exactly the sort of role he generally does. Yes. And certainly you've got a line between Sex, Lies and Videotape into Secretary, into Crash in there as well. Um, yes. I think Stargate, Stargate is him doing something a bit different. And then he goes back to what he knows. Yeah. <laughs> Um, there is one other person on the crew that I just wanted to mention because it surprised me when I was just researching all the different people. Uh, Lauren Schuler, Lauren Schuler Donner, uh, was producer on this and she produced um, Saint Elmo's Fire, Dave, Free Willy, mm-hmm. You've Got Mail, Any Given Sunday. Wow. And then she produces the X-Men film and she's been producer or exec producer on every X-Men film since, including Deadpool, the Wolverine films, the reboot of the X-Men films. Was she on Logan? Yeah. Wow. Nice. That's yeah. great. She's she's completely in there in the in the is it Fox who do the X-Men films? The yes. the Fox Marvel crossover. She is their go to person. Okay. It surprised me coming from Pretty in Pink. That's awesome. I I skipped somebody and I was leaving her um best for last. <laughs> from the the actresses in the movie, um, Annie Potts. Annie Potts oh, is amazing. She's awesome. She is awesome. And I have to be honest, I really only know her from Ghostbusters now that, that we've done that on the show. And, you know, Mary Jo Shively on Designing Women. And she's amazing. I, I've never seen her do something that I didn't like. Mm. Yeah, she's fantastic. Yep. And yeah, she actually she plays one of the grandmothers on uh, the Fosters now, which is another show on ABC Family, or I guess it's called Freeform now. Yeah, I love her and everything that she does that yeah, I've seen. She's she's fantastic. We 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 said on Ghostbusters that she, I think one of your friends had a, a crush on her. Yes, and and <laughs> in that film, not so much, but in this film, I can definitely see it. Oh. oh, absolutely. She's she's the one who has agency and knows herself and is yes. fun and dresses in different things. She's fabulous. I idolized her in this movie and so desperately wanted that incredibly cool, funky, older female friend who would, you know, sort of guide me through my teen years, which mm. I totally never had. But <laughs> in my head, that oh. person would have been just like Annie Potts. <laughs> okay. And I was surprised to spot Gina Gershon in the background. She's the bitchy blonde high school girl's friend, and I had never noticed her before. So I thought she looked familiar, but I couldn't place her. Yeah. What else has she done? Not to jump right to the most sexual one, but she's in Bound with um, Jennifer Tilly, mm. the lesbian heist movie. And she was in, I think, Showgirls, and she generally plays a very sort of like wise, dirty, earthy role in a lot of stuff at least that i remember okay my kind of woman yes <laughs> mine too she's fabulous so mandy having now seen pretty in pink did you enjoy it i didn't not enjoy it <laughs> a ringing... well that's a resounding success <laughs> a ringing endorsement think, yeah i think yeah. that's about as good as i can get i, I went back this morning and i started rewatching it again um, particularly because there were some things in my notes that I was kind of vague on that I repeated over and over again. And so I wanted to have kind of a, a clear notion of why I was having those emotions while I was watching it the first time. And I only got half an hour into it, but but it did remind me. Although the, the second watching, I feel like, even though it was only a little bit, was better than the first watching. 
Um, but I didn't get to the meat of it, so I don't, I don't know how I would have reacted mm-hmm. to the whole thing a second time. Definitely. I mean, I've probably watched this movie, I don't know, uh, somewhere between 12 and 20 times over the years. And my opinion has absolutely changed. But I think some of that comes from having watched it so young so long ago. If I had watched it for the first time now, I'm not sure that I would love it because I'm so frustrated with so many of the characters. Um, okay. But I have so much nostalgia, so much nostalgia tied to this movie, and especially because of the music, which is just sort of instant transport back to high school for me. I think that's fair. And I think the soundtrack mm. of this was pretty important. In fact, one of the reasons why I was having trouble finding production information is because if you go to the Wikipedia page for this movie, most of it is about the music and the soundtrack <laughs> and not about the movie at all. <laughs> Um, but I'm not particularly a fan of 80s music, so it just kind of went right over my head. I don't think it really holds up very well either, sadly, the music or the movie. <laughs> um, I, it's one of those things where I still listen to it, and I I love it because of the nostalgia, but I don't know that I would keep mm-hmm. listening to it if it was new music I was hearing today for the first time. Okay. But I know this film made so many of those bands' songs famous. It was definitely a powerhouse Hmm. as far as people buying and listening to the soundtrack. Well, it's interesting, though, because the the two most memorable songs from the movie weren't even on the soundtrack. Otis Mm -hmm. Redding's A Try a Little Tenderness was not on the soundtrack. Yep. And honestly, that's the only movie, the only song that I actually remember from in the movie. And uh, there was another one, but I can't recall which one it was. I just remember reading and it was the two at the time that I could recognize. And the other ones are just like, Oh, it was background noise. <laughs> well, the mm-hmm. Otis Redding song is so memorable because that's a brilliant ducky moment. <laughs> one of the, oh, nice, one of okay. the nice ones. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we'll talk about that when we get to ducky. How about that? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a ducky moment. That's for sure. Yeah. Yes, it is. M- Mandy, you said there were a couple of things you wanted to, clarify or get detail on for your notes uh, which, which of those what what were the things that stood out to you so the first thing that i was thinking of when i was watching this movie is the question kept popping up is this andy's story or is this blaine's story because even though it's it's obviously told from andy's perspective and her point of view the person who changes the person who has character development the person who is fundamentally different at the end of the movie than from the beginning of the movie is blaine Andy's still the same. Ducky's still the same. Steph is still the same. And so for me, I feel like it's Blaine's story that we're watching through Andy's eyes. That's an excellent point with the caveat that I actually don't believe Blaine particularly changed because I don't believe his entire speech at the end doesn't work for me at all. Um, But you're right that he is the only person who hasn't even attempted changing in the character arcs. The other ones, you're, you're absolutely correct. They don't change. They just become more at least for Andy, becomes more confident in what she already believed about herself. So right. it's not so much a development as a solidification. <laughs> okay. So, well, I think this is probably a good place for you to pull that soapbox back out about Blaine. <laughs> um, so, so tell me why, why do you think he didn't change? Why do you think that he was gaslighting her and that he was just being essentially a dick? Uh, because he's... He's rewriting history, that speech he gives to her where he says, I never stopped believing in you, you stopped believing in me, 
it's just not what happened. He's the one who stopped answering the telephone when she called. He asks her to prom, which for me doesn't really work as like a big movie plot point because I never even went to my prom. So I, when they put all that drama on it, I just think, yeah. But um, he asked her and then he blew her off. And then he lied to her about why he was blowing her off. And so when he says that she stopped believing in him, I I can't match that up to reality at all. She never stopped being willing to go with him. He was the one who totally just, what what do they call that now? Ghosted on her. He ghosted on her. Mm. And when she called him on it, and that's one of my favorite things about Andy's character, as much as it's, um, I think she maybe does it too much, too. She's so eager to confront people all the time. But she calls him on it the same way that she calls everybody else in the movie on their various different issues. And he basically just caves. And so if his idea is I never stopped believing you in you is, look, I put on a tux and I came to prom. Look at what I've done. I'm so unimpressed. Uh, and the idea that she's the one who's at fault and that he's displayed some sort of steady and unchanging love for her throughout this entire, you know, whatever, three-day relationship just doesn't work for me at <laughs> all. So although theoretically he's changing, I just don't see it because he's still lying to her at the end of the movie. If he had stood there and said, I screwed up. You're right. I stopped believing in us. I caved to the pressure of my friends and I have come to realize that they are assholes and I shouldn't have done that. And I'm here to apologize and say, I'm the one who screwed up and I hope that you'll take me back. That to me would be change. The way he presents it, I just think, oh, he's going to make her crazy for the rest of the time that they're together, always telling her that he's done nothing wrong and she's the one who messed up. <laughs> I saw that. No, I, I totally, I totally get you. Mm. I do. I can see that. I saw. I, I interpreted it differently, and it may be just because of how I wanted it to be so badly. Because, in my opinion, Blaine is the only bearable character <laughs> in the whole movie, <laughs> and and so I was looking at at it as he was acknowledging that it wasn't really him who gave up on her. It was he was following the will, the whims of his friends. Yeah. And so he didn't want to not go with her. He didn't believe those things about her. He just was choosing his asshole friends over her. And so in this moment, I felt like he was trying to explain that in a way that made him sound sweet and sensitive. And he was trying to be <laughs> suave without outright saying, I was an asshole and shouldn't have listened to my friends. But that may be me projecting what I wanted him no, I think say. that's what I believed originally when I saw it. I think, uh, and it's probably decades of romance novel that make me want a clear grovel from uh, the hero after he's screwed <laughs> up so badly. And this is not enough groveling for me. <laughs> well, he did. I mean, because he did say, I guess now you're going to want me to apologize or something like that. And I was like, wow, that's a sick <laughs> thing to say. Yeah. Like, yeah. What? what? <laughs> yes. In fact, apologize. That would be the adult thing to do. Yes. And actually, I had to, like, I rewound that part to listen to it again because my reaction and Andy's reaction were so opposite. <laughs> I was like, she didn't react to that at all. Did I hear that right? Uh huh. And I did hear that right. She just, I, I, I don't, I, I'm not quite sure what they were trying to do there. If it was 
they were, he was trying to be funny and she was trying to be mature and self-aware and that's what the writers were trying to, to do. But it, it did fall a little bit flat and, and I can definitely see where the soapbox comes from. Yeah. Well, and uh, to put it in context, it's the 80s and our standards for what a you know teen movie hero needed to do were pathetically mm. low. You know, as far as how decent a human being did you need to be to get the girl? Not very decent. Not at all. Just, you know, slightly less awful than the other choice. So in comparison, yeah, I guess he wins. Uh, but yeah, it, for me, at the end of the movie, did not, did not work. To, did not make me love Blaine. Okay. I think that's totally fair. But I get, I mean, for sure. If you have to choose, he's the only remotely acceptable choice compared to the other men in the movie. So I would absolutely pick him over anyone else. Well, yeah, so that then moves us very nicely on to Ducky. <laughs> and there's been some proper reactions to Ducky when, when we've mentioned this on Twitter with people coming out and saying he seems to be the best thing in the film. Which, as you can hear from my voice, I'm saying slightly <laughs> quizzically because... He's the best thing in the film? Yeah. If oh you watched gosh. it in the 80s and you have not watched it in a long time, that's absolutely how you will remember him. I think if okay. people I watch understand. it now. Yeah. No, I because that understand. was... That, I have the same thought as you, while also my first thought whenever I think of Ducky is, oh, he was the best part of the movie. And then when I actually watch the movie, I go, oh my God, he's so awful in so many ways. So I can see why you would not like him. Yeah, I, I was honestly shocked by how many people I don't think Matthew, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think there was a single person involved in the conversations on Twitter who did not like Ducky and who did not want Andy to end up with Ducky in the end. Ah, so you're putting me on point so that if we've forgot, forgotten someone, they have a go at me about it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> But but no, I think I think you're absolutely right. No one came out and said, "Oh, yeah, he's giant jerk or something." But just watching it and his affectation of being slightly out there and slightly weird and kooky and it's just all so much. Calm down, kid. Be nice. Hey, well, okay, his personality doesn't bother me. I I like him. I like him being weird and you know the way that Sean Cryer ex expressed that he portrayed him was you know as just more of an effeminate man. And I'll know a lot of people say that it comes across as if Ducky were gay, but John Cryer did not intend that in the way that he portrayed him. And I like, I mean, there, there are people in the world who are like Ducky, who are kooky and wacky and have this awesome fashion sense. I will give him that. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, who, who talk weird. And, and, and I did really like that he, he knew that he loved Andy. He didn't hide from it at all. You know, in a lot of romantic comedies, when you've got the best friend who's in love with the lead, it's always right. this hidden thing. It's never mm. talked yes. about. It's just something that's in secret. It's turmoil. It's stressful. Ducky owned that. Yes. And so for that, I have to give him credit. As a, as a person, if you take Andy out of it, I like Ducky. <laughs> but the reasons I don't like him are the way that he reacted and treated Andy. Absolutely. Mm. Going to her job and pulling the alarm. The Multiple first time, times. it's kind of funny, but then you figure out that he's doing it specifically so she can't talk to Blaine. Yeah. 
And then he keeps doing it. And then he's like, you know, he's trying to be funny because he doesn't think he did anything wrong. But then he's like, you need to have that door checked out because I had to open it five or seven times for that alarm to go off. Yeah. And I'm like, you were clearly doing this on purpose at her Mm. job. So you're not only interfering with her personal happiness, but you're interfering with her job. That's not okay. Mm -hmm. Well, and then the phone calls, the hanging out outside your house, hanging out outside your boss's house when you're visiting her, the telling her what to do and telling her he can't respect her as a person if she chooses someone, you know, else other than him. Oh, his whole speech about her going out with Blaine, like I was out at that point. I mean, I was already highly annoyed with him at this point, but it was completely uncalled for. I mean, he doesn't know this person and his his reactions to her actually had nothing to do with Blaine and had everything to do with the fact that he wants to punish Andy for not being interested in him. Yep. And that makes him a really terrible human being. Yeah. No, I think that, you know, at the age, again, I'm watching this movie through so many different filters. I loved him when I was a teenager. I was so mad that he did not end up with Andy at the end of the movie when I was a teenager. And I think part of that comes from there were, there were just no, there was no place for characters like Ducky in 80s teen movies. Because if you weren't cool, you were weird in a negative, bad way. You were a loser in 80s teen movies. And one of the things I think that people love and identify with about Ducky is that they gave him a coolness that maybe wasn't recognized by the people around him, but by the audience, you can recognize that he doesn't think he's a loser. He doesn't think he's uncool. He thinks he's the one who's got style and everyone else is uncool. And to be able to give the oddball character that confidence in himself was really unusual, I think, in 80s movies, at least for me, when I think back to them, the the weird, odd character is frequently portrayed as just not having any appeal at all until they get, like, the pretty girl makeover and look just like the popular kids. So mm-hmm. th- there was a lot to like about Ducky and that. And, but again, as you say, every time he interacts with Andy, it's bad. It's stalkery. It's harassment. It's weird. Um, and as an adult, I look at him and think that he would totally be like an MRA guy complaining about how (laughs) bitches always friend zone him and girls say they want a nice guy but they really you know don't know what they want he'd be horrible if he were in the you know the same setting these days probably although i i will say i kind of would like to see a movie about ducky in a universe where andy didn't exist just (laughs) to see if he could really be that cool quirky oddball that we want him to be so desperately yeah because he can be hilarious and funny when he gets shoved in that girl's bathroom in the high school by the bullies and he's complaining about how nice it is and they have doors on the stalls and (laughs) he doesn't know that the tampon machine is he thinks it's a candy machine and (laughs) and he's just wandering around yelling about how unfair the universe is because the girl's bathroom is so nice that that is a great moment um but yeah, Andy does not bring out the best in him until no. the end of the movie. Mm. But we can wait. Until he gets over himself. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Until he gets to the point where he stops making it all about him. Yeah, that is true. So I think that's actually a really good way to segue into let's go ahead and jump to talking about the original ending. In the original movie, and in fact, it was even filmed this way, Andy mm-hmm. and Ducky 
end up, ended up together and not Blaine. And they showed that ending to test audiences and the test audiences actually <laughs> booed because <Yeah>. they <laughs> wanted Andy to end up with Blaine. And so they reshot it. And I think a, a funny thing about this is this, you know, usually you turn movies into books. Uh-huh. I mean, you turn books into movies. And in this particular instance, there was a novel adaptation of the movie and it was written before the final one came out. And so the novel still has the original version at the end, which I think is hilarious. That's interesting. Pretty, yeah. I kind of want to read it now. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I, I found some interesting quotes one is is John Cryer was talking about there's a apparently a DVD edition of this movie that came out in 2006 called Everything's Ducky and so John Cryer did a lot of the commentary and stuff on it and he's uh remembering that Molly said that she would have been fine with the original ending if Robert Downey Jr. had played Ducky, but since it was John Cryer, she didn't think that Molly that Andy would have ended up with him. Ouch. Yeah, <laughs> that's kind of a harsh thing to say. And then um, the director got into the John Cryer hate too, because um, even though he did want Cryer to play Ducky, he kind of later regretted it. He said, "What I learned was that there are no rules in the sense that life isn't fair. Ducky should have the girl, and, and it was all built for that, and it was designed for that. And I could have ended that way had I not fucked with one thing. I cast John Cryer." Oh, man. (laughs) If I were John Cryer, that whole (laughs) movie would have scarred me for life. Yeah, I I think that's all. Because I think, honestly, John Cryer was – I mean, he's still attractive. He was attractive. He he didn't have, you know, the jock boy sensibilities that you get from Blaine. He didn't have that suaveness that Steph had. But he – was definitely nothing to sneeze at. And so I I don't really get it. And, you know, Robert Downey Jr. in the 80s was just as awkward as John Cryer was. So I don't really get that. I don't know. So, But it sounds like you would have been more down with Andy and Ducky ending up together than Andy and Blaine, maybe at least in the beginning. Is that that right? Uh, I I mean – when I saw the movie, I wanted Andy and Ducky to be together, period. Like, there was no question in my mind in the 80s that that was how that movie was supposed to end. Um, now, however, the changed ending is definitely, for me, a better choice because it allows me to redeem Ducky's terrible behavior for the entire movie. I'm trying to picture the end of the movie where after harassing and stalking her and trying to manipulate her the entire movie, he also gets her without having to change that. That would be terrible because for me at the end of the movie, the reason I can, and it's probably why I still feel such fondness for Ducky, even though I can also see all of the ways in which he's dreadful throughout the whole movie is because he redeems himself at the end. He shows up for her, when she's alone and feeling weak and vulnerable. And then he stops making it about him and what he wants. And he acknowledges that she gets to make a choice. And he also even drops his hostility to this rich guy who he can't stand, which I think he probably still shouldn't like the rich guy <laughs> because we and Blaine, not friends. But um he lets go of all the stuff that makes him, for me, a bad 
guy in this movie uh, and becomes what I really want him to be, which is the charming, funny, I love you and I will always love you, but I totally understand that you don't return my feelings and I'm still going to be your friend and be here for you. And that's wonderful. So at the end of the movie, the way it is now, I uh, I get to love Ducky instead of thinking he's a jerk. Okay. I like that. It makes me feel happy. <laughs> <laughs> the interesting thing with the way the characters are portrayed and then the ending happens, because as we've said... Blaine is not the greatest character. We, the, You can see how he'd be nice, but he's also not uh, the deepest love of her life. Right. Potentially. Right. It feels like the ending's set up for her to go, actually, all I need is me. And go to the prom on her own and have a good time with everyone and enjoy it and come away feeling strengthened and empowered. But it almost you feels like it falls that. into a... <laughs> it, yeah, it falls into a rom-com trope of, well, she's got to end up with someone. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's exactly what it is. <laughs> that, and this is why you have to watch some kind of wonderful. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, um, is that a spoiler? It's not, because you won't have any idea to whom it applies. Because okay. Okay. everything is okay. going to But, but okay. John Hughes does eventually get to the point as a filmmaker, which apparently only took him another 12 months, um, <laughs> where, where he really deepens his thought process about what teenagers you know should see as their options and their choices so Hmm. because yeah you're right i think that would have been a great ending for this movie i'm i am a a rom-com girl i want the the girl and the boy live happily ever after together and so that's usually if if the movie is set up to be a rom-com that's going to be my expectation and i'm not going to want it to be any other way if i go into it knowing that it's not a rom-com per se, then I would more likely be okay to be okay with that kind of ending. I mean, cause I'm, I mean, I'm all about girl power and, yeah. you know, like being self-aware and understanding that you don't need a boy to define you, but that's not what a romantic comedy is. And so when my expectation yeah. Yeah. is that I'm going in to watch a romantic comedy, then I want her to end up with one of the boys, assuming yeah. I, I like the boys. But, and in this case I did like Blaine. Uh, but apparently I am the only person in the whole universe who <laughs> likes Blaine, so. <laughs> no. no, but you're right. I just watched some movie, what was it called? How to Be Single with uh, mm-hmm. the woman from Fifty Shades of Grey, maybe? Is that her name's Dakota something? Johnson. She's in a movie called How to Be Single with Rebel Wilson, and it's super cute, but in my head I thought it was a rom-com, and at the end of the movie it did not end the way I thought, and uh, like you said, uh, had I had the right expectation, I would have said, yay, girl power, and at the end of the movie I was kind of like, aww, but yeah, <laughs> but <laughs> there and there were all kinds of cute guys in that movie, like we couldn't find one, any, any of them. <laughs> You're right, the expectation definitely sets sort of what what you what you need from the ending of the movie yeah yeah so i take it back i don't uh, want I, andy to go to prom by herself <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've just looked it up it's got alison brie in it so i'm down to watch this um <laughs> although it's got alison brie in it so no one's going to end up with anyone <laughs> I, I don't think any of her films or shows she ends up happy with anyone oh, well, <laughs> I, you'll be going into it with the right expectations yes okay <laughs> Okay. Well, Matthew and I were debating something, and I would like you to weigh in on it, AJ. Yes. When uh, Blaine and Andy have their first kiss, is it a good kiss or is it not a good kiss? 
Oh. Well, I think the fact that I cannot specifically remember the kiss despite watching the movie approximately 48 <laughs> hours ago would mean that I don't think it's a particularly awesome kiss. Which, when when do okay. they first kiss? Is it on that first dreadful date night? It is. Mm. It's the, yeah, he it's the last thing they do. Yeah. Oh, when he invites her to prom. Yeah. And she sort of sort of steps up and kisses him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I do like that. That works for me because I like when girls and women aren't portrayed as sort of receptively waiting for a guy mm. to kiss them. So that that now I'm remembering the moment that did work for me. I don't remember it as being particularly hot, though. I just remember it as being her expressing this kind of, oh, I do like you after all. OK, I wasn't sure, but but you're redeeming yourself to me now. OK. But I just think it's interesting because my reaction to that, if, if you uh, look in my thoughts doc, is I actually wrote down, that's a nice first kiss. And then uh, Matthew was like, that kiss was so awful. And I was like, well, <laughs> I didn't think so. so. So we had these comments back and forth and I've thought on it a bit because they kind of peck at each other a little bit. Yeah. Um, and I think it's because you have an expectation of the first kiss in a romantic film to be a significant great moment but actually they kiss like teenagers who haven't kissed anyone before so i think it it does work in that sense okay i'm a fan of (laughs) awkward when it comes to that kind of thing so in that way i i do like it um it doesn't have to be hot for me to love it because as you say it it really fits the moment and i like when people acknowledge that teenagers are not adults who've been doing this for decades Mm. yeah yeah and it's their tenth take kissing each other. <laughs> <laughs> right. Let's try this one where I just sort of lunge at you and bounce off your face. That'll be good. <laughs> <laughs> and our noses bump. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, we've spent a lot of time talking about Blaine and Ducky. So I want to shift the conversation a little bit and talk about Andy and Steph. <laughs> because I see them as being very, very similar to one another. And I wanted to see what you guys thought about that idea. Do I need to explain why I think they're very similar? Do it because I I, I want to see if your explanation matches what I think you're saying. Okay. Mm-hmm. They are both very arrogant, judgmental people. Mm-hmm. And they both form an opinion on someone and stick to their guns on that opinion. And they both, like, Andy judges people for having money. Steph judges people for not having money. And they're, I just, I feel like they're two sides of the same coin. I do think that you're right that they have a lot of similarity. Although I think that Andy's prejudging of people is based in real experience and how she has been treated. Whereas I don't think Steph has somehow been horribly treated by poor people his whole life. So right. that, you know, he, clearly they must be awful because he's had such a terrible time of it with poor people. Whereas I think she genuinely <laughs> had, at least the way they portray it in the movie, she genuinely is regularly harassed by people with money. So I think she's added her extra own self-consciousness and se- sensitivity to it because she doesn't have money. But she's also coming from a, a place of real experience where she's been treated terribly. So her defensiveness is not simply based on assumptions. It's based on, yeah, you've already done this to me 20 times. I'm not going to sit here and take it for the 21st. 
But Steph is probably one of my favorite characters in this movie. And, and not because he's a good person. I mean, he's sort of out and out bad guy the entire way through. But because James Spader is so good as an actor at giving mm. sort of extra layers and extra feeling to what could be really just pure caricature, a lesser actor in this role, he would have just been the rich guy who doesn't like poor girls and who just is a terrible person. But because Spader's so good, you can see in that first scene when he comes up to her at her car after school, he recognizes something in her that he, I think, wants to destroy. <laughs> you know, he'd like to take it from her and ruin it. But that he recognizes, I think, that she believes in her own worth. And I think he doesn't believe that about himself. He he recognizes deep down that he's a pretty worthless guy. And I think he's really frustrated by the fact that someone who he sees as being lesser than him actually is more confident in herself than she is. Um, so whereas he, he could just be the creepy rich dude who's just going to run around and hate poor girls and hit on them. I always get this terrific sense of Steph in this movie as being motivated by this kind of vulnerability that he's never going to admit but that he really does know deep down how worthless he is and they have blaine say that at the end which is sort of the beat you over the head moment of it when blaine's like you know she thinks you're shit hmm. deep down yeah. you know you're shit or whatever he says but you already got that if you're watching james spader in that role like that's been clear the entire movie without anyone having to say it out loud and so i i love this deaf character even though i hate him James Spader almost didn't get the role because he came in and when he auditioned for it, he was so reprehensible that <laughs> the 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 director, whoever was casting, was repulsed by him. And then they realized that that was the character and that's why he got it. And I think he did nail it. Yeah. But when he's on the screen, you just want to watch him. Yeah. Even though you hate him, yeah. you just want to watch him. And I think part of that's the hair, <laughs> but part of it is just his, his presence. Yeah. You know, he, he was fantastic. He's magnetic. Even though he was awful. Apparently also, and I, I think it's James Spader who I read this about, um, that he's like near blind without his glasses and he can't wear contacts for some reason. So when he's playing a role where he can't wear glasses, he said that just sort of everything is a blur. He can't even see the face of the actor standing across from him. Um, so he's sort of acting into the void with all of his roles where he's not wearing glasses, which must be just a peculiar experience. That's interesting. Yeah. But yeah. He's no, pretty great. He's, he's fantastic. Okay, so the last talking point I have on my list is I want to talk about the train track imagery that we get in this movie because it's it's there a lot. And it made me a little bit uncomfortable, and I don't know if that's just a sign of the times, you know, or, or what. I mean, because usually train track imagery is going to be, oh, well, one of the characters is from the wrong side of the tracks. You know, and and it was just kind of beat us over the head with the idea that Andy's poor and that her family is poor and she's different from everybody else. Yeah. Did you did you pick up on that? Am I just being like overly critical? Oh, I don't think so. No, I think that was pretty heavy handed. 
Absolutely. Okay. It was definitely a wrong side of the tracks vibe, which is a little disingenuous. I mean, as much as I love John Hughes and I grew up in the Chicago suburbs and all of his movies are set in the Chicago suburbs. So when you see at the beginning of the movie, the Elgin garbage truck or whatever that is, Elgin was, you know, not far from where I lived. So I recognize this environment seriously. But realistically speaking, it, it, when you talk about areas of towns that were separated by train tracks and have, you know, sort of the quote unquote bad area on one side versus the quote unquote good area of the other town. In most towns where that happened, that was a racial divide. It was not necessarily, I mean, I, I'm sure there were towns where there were poor white people versus rich white people. But um, when I was watching this movie, I was uh, reminded of how incredibly white John Hughes movies are. And when the train track imagery happens for me, it seems a little uh, calling forth sort of that that idea of the wrong side of the town without really acknowledging that in most places that wrong side of the town was the black area of town and a poor area of town. And there's no acknowledgement of race in his movies at all. Like, I think I made a note at one point that I think there's one non-white actor in this movie, and it's the elderly Asian man who walks up to Ducky and just stares at him while he's stalking her outside of Iona's apartment. And that guy has a Fu Manchu mustache and is like a complete <laughs> caricature. And I, and I, as far as I can remember, that's the only non-white character in the movie. No, I think you're right. So it's, yeah, it's, it's not a very terrific representation of the world. And the train check imagery is kind of obvious. I completely agree that it's uh, definitely something that he's not great at in his films here and, and does gradually improve as he goes on and makes more films. Yeah. Um, the only thing I was going to say about Steph is I, I think the film's trying to do something quite clever because, Mandy, I, th I think they're quite similar people as well. But they're trying to show that she has to do, she has to work and look after her father and work hard in school and put up with all these rich bitches. Mm-hmm. But he can just be a rich kid of Instagram, swanning around doing whatever he wants. <laughs> so oh. she's she's doing the thing of working twice as hard to get half as far as he is. Absolutely. I don't know. I just, I don't particularly like Andy, if you guys haven't picked up on that. <laughs> <laughs> so I I think that's, that's why one of the main reasons I want to equate her with Steph is because I don't like her. And I see in her a lot of the same things that I see in him, just, you know, for, for different reasons and different motivations. But you're right. That was a good way of putting it, you know, working twice as hard to get half as far. But I feel like she puts some of it on herself, I feel like. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know how to say this without feeling like I'm victim shaming. And, and, and so I'm going to try to tread carefully here. But, you know, her, her interactions with the other girls in this movie... I will say up front, those other girls are reprehensible. I mean, they're, <laughs> they are like mean girls to the max. And I don't understand. I, I was going to say, when I was watching this movie, I was going to say, I don't think that's realistic. I've never in my entire life had somebody treat me for no reason the way that these girls treat Andy. And then I remembered that's not actually true. I did have one person in my life who was very much like, what was her name? Benny? Yes. So I, I did have a Benny in my life um, for a couple of years in high school, and it was awful. Um, would in class randomly lean over and talk about my clothes, pick on me, make fun of me, whisper, point, all of those sorts of things. Ugh. 
So I, I, I did have that happen, but it was only one person who was leading it. It wasn't like everybody. And, and so I was feeling like it was a little, that was also a little bit heavy handed, but then Andy's reaction to it at first I appreciated because she wasn't engaging and, and she was telling the teachers, oh no, I'm fine. You know, they're not doing anything, whatever, which I get that's partial self-preservation because you don't want to make it worse. But then she would do stuff like she did in the gym scene and be like, oh no, wait, teacher, guess what? I do think the same thing. And these girls are terrible, even though we didn't get to see what she actually said, we get the gist of it. And so for her to do stuff like that, and she did it out of spite, but you know, you saw the look on her face. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like some of it, she does bring on herself by being that way. But at the same time, they're mean and horrible people to her. And so sometimes like, you know, I guess she did sum it up perfectly in the movie when she said sometimes she just has a temper and she loses it because she can't stand to see what they do. And so I guess all of that is for me to say, I'm very conflicted about Andy and I like her and I don't like her all at the same time. (laughs) How about that? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's absolutely fair. And I think that that's good writing for her character, as opposed to the mean girls who are poorly written because there is no, they're, they're not characters, they're caricatures. So that, that's bad writing on the mean girl end because there's nothing to those girls except their meanness towards her. We get no detail about them that gives you any kind of context for them. Whereas with Andy, when she's mean, and she is, um, it's when, what's his name? Blaine. I'm already blocking his name out. (laughs) When he comes into tracks, the record shop, and he's buying the records so that he can talk to her and like, you know, flirt with her or whatever. And she makes that crack about, does he want to pay with the American Express platinum card? It's a mean little dig about this guy who hasn't actually been mean to her. So she's definitely flawed where, you know, she's carrying that resentment over to people who have not yet been mean to her. Mm. But she's also, uh, I think, portrayed as sort of the character who's trying to get beyond her own prejudices. She, you know, verbalizes at some point in the movie, am I supposed to not like them just because they're rich? Because isn't that the same as them not liking me because I'm poor? So she's working on it. Hmm. Which I appreciate. I think I glossed right over that because I was so frustrated with with everything else. When you, I mean, when you combine things like her dig at Blaine over the American Express card, you know, when she's telling her dad about the about him and she calls him a Richie, mm-hmm. you know, she's she's got these deep seated prejudices against people who have money, regardless of whether they've done anything to her or not. And so I was having trouble getting past that to see more yeah but you're right you know she it is something she she acknowledged and she is trying to work on which i think i have to give her credit for and even when she says that to her dad she sort of like grimaces and like makes a face at herself like i know that's a ridiculously stupid nickname because he looks at her you know as if to say seriously that's what you're calling people now and she knows that she's that Hmm. that's not particularly appropriate or fair 
But I think I think I just love Andy. Aside from the fact that my best friend in high school was a redhead who wore a lot of pink, um, <laughs> <laughs> which is funny. Every time I watch this movie, I realize I'm sort of slotting my friend Christine into that role. We were neither of us nearly as cool as Andy was sartorially, <laughs> um, not even close. But um, I so enjoy her constant. Uh, focus on calling out what is really happening in scene after scene after scene. Um, even as she, I think, takes it almost too far in a way where, you know, part of what allows humanity to continue to exist is that we don't always call each other out on everything because otherwise we'd have to kill each other. You have to let some things slide and she never lets anything slide ever, which is a strength and a weakness. Um, but I, I really do appreciate that she's written where when, you know, John Cryer says, hey, you're going to be a person I can't respect if you do this, that she calls him out on how not okay it is what he says to her. And she calls out Blaine when he's trying to say, oh, this is just, you know, I don't know what you're talking about. She insists on making him say things. She calls out her father. She calls out the principal. She pretty much calls out everyone. Um and and that really works for me, even as much as I think it is not a trait that would serve her well through the rest of her life if she can't sometimes let things go. Mm. So you had mentioned up top that one of the things that you've seen in the transition of, or I guess the evolution of romance over the decades, is the agency of the main character. And my feeling on watching this is that Andy has a significant amount of agency, which is unusual, particularly for a romantic comedy. Double that, that it's a teenage romantic comedy. And then it was made in the 80s. Yeah. Um, but I also got the impression that maybe there were some things about this that you thought weren't quite so great. And I, and I wanted to ask you about that. Or did I misunderstand what you were saying uh, when you were talking about that and then kind of inserting Pretty and in Pink in there? I'm trying to think if how I would phrase it differently from I'm not sure I know how to respond to that. Okay. Which, what did you what did you think I was saying? Cuz maybe I was saying it and I'm just not. Um it felt like you were saying that pretty and pink is one of those where there isn't agency and that it falls into more of the problematic aspects of romance. Ah. And and maybe that was just because of 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 Ducky, the Ducky and Blaine stuff, and not particularly Andy. But it was during the conversation, during the the part where you were talking about heroines having agency, and so um, I just wanted to circle back around to that because I feel like Andy has a tremendous amount of agency, and I wanted to see if if you were seeing something there that I'm not seeing. No, no, I you know I think that is why I liked the movie a lot in the '80s is because I do think that. I think you're right. I think she does have a lot of agency. And I think that that was not typical at the time, um, okay. especially for girl roles in movies. And I'm, I'm probably only even thinking about Molly Ringwald roles in teen movies in the 80s. And um, I think this is a movie that gave her a lot of that where we didn't necessarily see it. That I know you haven't watched 16 Candles yet and because we tell you how awful it is. But the whole point of that movie is that she's waiting for a boy to like her the entire movie she's just basically waiting and has been waiting to turn 16 and then have a boy kiss her and there's just her whole dream of her life is that she would get a a, a car 
a Corvette or something and then get kissed by a cute boy. And that's literally all she's hoping for. Like that they give her nothing else as a character. Um, whereas in Pretty in Pink, they give her her fashion interests. They give her the taking care of her father thing as messed up as that relationship is. Um, they give her a lot of control of her own life in this movie. And, and I think that is why I liked it so much when it came out. It felt really different. Okay, so let's move into our favorite moments, because even though we have been very critical of of this movie, I think um, at least AJ and I have favorite moments. I don't know that Matthew does. I definitely maybe he, do. Maybe he can come up with something. I, 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 I think it's significant that there's two characters we haven't really talked about yet, and this is basically where they come in, <laughs> Iona and her father. <laughs> yes, so yeah. Iona is... Uh, the character played by Annie Potts, and she is freaking amazing. Yeah, I love and her. I kind of want to be like her a little bit. <laughs> oh, until the end, which I understand the point they're making, but oh. Well, so I have thoughts about that, and um, I, I was scrolling back through Twitter trying to figure out who it was, but somebody specifically asked um, what I thought about Iona's arc, especially at the end. And, and I do have thoughts. So <laughs> I, Iona is amazing. But Iona is also a woman who is not growing up. She is still very much stuck in the past, I think, which isn't really evidenced as much until you see her dressed up in her prom dress with the nice giant beehive (laughs) swaying and hugging on Andy. And she's just like reminiscing and relishing and just talking about how she wishes she were still young and you know, that she wishes you were born old and, and you get younger as you go on. And so you, you kind of, you know, be- before that moment, she's just this amazing, happy-go-lucky, awesome person yeah. who just, she has her own style. She she does her own thing, you know, and, and she's supportive of Andy and what Andy wants to do. And she's just great. But then you kind of start to think that maybe Iona has some issues of her own considering her friends are still in high school. Iona strikes me as someone who makes terrible decisions about men. Just terrible, <laughs> terrible decisions yes. about men. Yes. And, and and so in the end, she while we don't actually get to see the events that occur that, that make these changes happen, in the end, she has met this man who seems to be well put together and, and granted I'm only saying this based on the the brief introduction we had to him you know he's he's dressed nicely in a suit you know he's he's the exact opposite of what you would expect someone like Iona to be with and so when she walks out at the end dressed her age you know I mean like she even says oh I look like a mom well yeah you do but mm-hmm. that's the age that you are you know it's okay and I think a lot of people instinctively cringe here because it looks like she's changing for a man. And I don't read it that way because I have to be honest with you. I think that the very next day she's going to be back with the spiky hair and the leather. You know, I, I didn't read this as a permanent change. I read this as this is a man who I really, really want to get to know. And so I'm going to do what I need to do in order to do that. But at the same time, she's still her. And so I I don't see it as explicitly being she's changing her whole person for a man and she's never going to be the same Iona that we know. I think she's maturing and that's a good thing. 
For me, John Hughes is so close with that moment because I think he gets part of the way there. I think showing her her ability to recognize that because the guy isn't what she thinks of as cool, like she looks at that guy and sees a totally square, boring, you know, stable, nice guy. And her ability to see in him that that he's got value, that that is something that she deserves. She deserves kindness and stability, that that's the great growth for Iona. I just wish it didn't have to go come along with the wardrobe style change, because I think if you pair that growth of recognizing that you've made bad choices by picking guys who looked cool, but who didn't treat you well, and now you found one who doesn't look cool, but will treat you well and will also accept you in all your funky weirdness, that that would be sort of the ideal fairy tale ending for Iona for me. But I can live with it, even if she has to wear the disgusting blazer with the string tie. <laughs> yeah, see, I, I feel like, and honestly, this may just be me projecting what I want out of that story, because I love her so much. I feel like that if John Hughes decided to tell Iona's story, that we would get that. That by the end of that movie, she would still be with Terrence and he would be accepting her for who she is. And sometimes she would wear a blazer when they went out and sometimes she'd have, you know, a white wig with this crazy (laughs) dress on. Mm. Um, And and, I I would be super happy then that that was that's perfect. That is my headcanon for Iona. (laughs) I adopt your headcanon as the actual thing. That for sure. Mm. And then... My my favorite Iona line, honestly, was when uh, she was in the club and Ducky was there. And Ducky says, know what an older woman does for me? And Iona goes, changes your diapers. <laughs> and then Ducky follows it up with the most amazing thing. He says, touche. Touche. Like, he's trying to say touche, but he's making a play on his little tushy. <laughs> and I burst out laughing right there because, I mean, both of them, her line, his line together, it was perfect. I loved it. I couldn't decide if he was trying to be clever by abbreviating touche or if that's one of those words that maybe he'd only ever read and never heard someone said out loud because I used to make that mistake all the time mm. when I was a kid. Oh, yeah. I would mispronounce words that I'd only read because I read like a fiend and then I would go to say words and have someone correct me. And that's always a little embarrassing. But yeah, no, that's. Oh, that still happens to me. So. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm just not embarrassed by it anymore. Now I've just (laughs) accepted it as the way of the world. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. The other great character from this film is her her father, (sighs) who doesn't have much, but everything that's brought in from Harry Dean Stanton, he comes across with so much depth, and and you get the feeling that he's a a fully realized character to this actor. Oh, he's an amazing actor, and he's so fantastic in Mm. this role. And and I think watching this movie with a more critical eye in order to be able to talk about it with you guys really brought a lot of stuff out that I never really noticed before. I think I over-identify with this movie a lot on too many <laughs> levels um, because I look at Harry Dean Sand. He actually reminds me of one of my, my, of my grandfather more than my dad, per mm-hmm. se, um, because my grandfather was a blue-collar worker, was a carpet layer, and, and then when sort of the carpet-laying industry dried up when fewer people were installing carpets in, like, the 980s, 90s, he, hmm. you know, the union still took care of their people and gave them sort of make-work jobs, but, but he sort of lost all of his 
There's no self-esteem in being paid to sit around and do nothing. Uh, so when I watch Harry Dean Stanton, I just see this guy who's kind of, he's struggling so much in his life. And obviously he's, it's not good because no high schooler should be parenting their parent. Their relationship is a mm. mess and he is not healthy. But he's also trying so hard to take care of his daughter and to give her what I, I think he sees as this this lack of mothering that she would have had had his wife and her mother not just taken off and abandoned them. So he does all the things that maybe in my head I picture he wouldn't have done if Andy's mom was still around, where he, you know, he pays attention to her clothes and he asks about her dresses and if it's something that she made and where she got the materials and, and all of this stuff that I don't picture a guy like him necessarily doing if he had his wife still living with him. But he's, he's trying so hard to give his daughter what she needs, even as he's completely failing to give her what she needs as far as financial stability and the ability not to feel like they have this sort of precarious life where maybe there'll be money to pay for things and maybe there won't, um, mm. which is not a good way to raise your kid with with them worrying about that. Obviously, that's... That's a glib way to put it. It's not as if you can sort of choose not to be poor, but it, he's he's struggling on so many levels with how his life has turned out. I just love watching him. Every time they talk, it's such interesting communication in a way that um, I don't think that I regularly spoke with my parents. I feel like they're really honest with each other and they really sit down and appreciate each other as people. And maybe that's the two of them clinging to each other because they've been abandoned together. Mm. I just love watching him. I had a bit of a hard time with his character the first time I watched it because of the actor. My primary experience with Harry Dean Stanton is when he played the creepy old cult leader in Big Love. Ah, uh, I haven't seen that. <laughs> and... That would I be. Mean, <laughs> he he was very old and had like fourteen year old wives oh. in in that move in that show. Okay, so that's a and, creepy <laughs> creepy carryover to this movie. Yes, <laughs> um, and so I I struggled just because when I see him, I see creepy old man. Oh yeah. Okay. And <laughs> but I, I will say when I started watching it again today, I thought that the scenes between Andy and her dad were really sweet. I think. I think they're sad because it's not the kind of relationship that a daughter and father should have. Mm -hmm. The closeness is, the honesty is, but the roles that they're playing in each other's lives are not. Yeah. I wasn't creeped out the second time. I will say that. <laughs> so so I appreciate it a little bit more. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I struggled with that the whole, the whole way through the first time because all I can see was creepy old man. I... I have a really bad habit of equating actors with their characters <laughs> yes. and not being able to disassociate that sometimes, which is really terrible when your favorite doctor plays Kilgrave. Jessica <laughs> <Jones>. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he's great. <laughs> he, no, he is absolutely great. Um, yeah. but, but I have a really hard time with that. And so sometimes I do have to watch things more than once in order to appreciate the character that's actually on my screen right now versus what I've seen in the past. And when, when we're going through this process, sometimes that's not easy because I, I mean, we're, we're watching one new movie a week. And on top of that, generally I'm watching, you know, five or six episodes of television to get ready for our third Tuesday television episode too. And so I just don't always have time right. to watch things more than once. 
but I, I, I feel like I need to see if I can figure out a way to do that because I think it, it would help my perception of some people and, yeah. and some characters if, if I could, because sometimes I just can't get past it. Oh, I have actors who I think I would be absolutely horribly rude to in real life because I'd be unable to separate them from their characters at all. <laughs> I'm just convinced they're dreadful people, and I'm sure they're perfectly lovely. Uh, the woman you who plays Mozart. Dolores Umbridge, maybe? <laughs> oh, yeah. No, she's clearly bad seed. Yeah. Okay, Uh, AJ, what are your favorite moments besides, I know you you just did a a whole segment on Harry Dean Stanton. Was there anything else (laughs) that you really enjoyed? Um, I do. And I think most of my favorite moments really are tied to Ducky's character, which is funny because, like I said, as I watch it now, I'm so angry with him so much of the time. But he gets all of the good comedy moments. And John Cryer is a very physical comedian. He really can... he plays with his body as opposed to sort of what's his name whoever plays Blaine Andrew McCarthy Andrew McCarthy it plays a very sort of like tight pulled in character in this role whereas Ducky is physically all over the place and literally throws himself around the room in more than one scene um so between the uh girls bathroom scene that I mentioned before which I just thought was hilarious and then the Otis Redding scene where he shows up in the record shop again where he's being weird and kind of creepy and i don't at all like about how ducky constantly makes jokes with girls about getting them pregnant and having sex with them because that's gross and weird but his entire performance of the uh, try a little tenderness is just so out there and fun and just him being willing to be weird in public and not care if it makes him look weird. I, I'd love that moment. Well, I'm glad you finally brought that up because I was going to say we cannot have a conversation about Pretty in Pink and not talk about that scene. <laughs> but I will say I I knew that scene existed. You didn't like it? It wasn't what I expected. How about that? Because I I didn't know what song he did the dance to. I knew he did the dance. Um, I, when I went on vacation – a couple months back on on a cruise, one of the nightly entertainment things was essentially a John Hughes review. It was called On the Record, um, and it was about the Brat Pack movies, and it was basically they were all mashed together into, like, one cohesive story. <laughs> and <laughs> so, like, the jock dude's name was Blaine, and, uh. you know, there was a character named Watts, who I think is from some kind of wonderful. Yep. And, yes. and so they were all mashed together. And so it, it was actually a really interesting experience for me because I was familiar at that point with Ferris Bueller and The Breakfast Club, was not familiar with Sixteen Candles or Pretty in Pink or Some Kind of Wonderful. And so I kind of only knew what was happening about 20% of the time. <laughs> but in the, the moments before it started, they were showing clips from the movies up on the screen during like a trivia segment. And so I got to watch John Cryer do the dance, but it, we didn't get to hear the music with it. And so just watching him do it, you're expecting it to be this like really upbeat, funky song, you know, like Michael Jackson or, mm. <laughs> you know, I don't know. So, and, and it was actually originally intended to be Michael Jackson. They just couldn't get the rights to the song. And so I didn't know that at the time. And so I'm expecting this to be this awesome, incredible thing. And then he's coming in doing this, like, fast-paced jerky dance to this slow, mellow, starting Otis Redding song. And it just completely threw me off. And, and I didn't know what was going on. 
at the, <laughs> in that moment. And and then of course, I mean, the song speeds up and gets a little bit better, but it just it did not work for me with that song. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> I, I do. I love that moment. And for me, I, and again, this is probably one of those things that I'm reading into it, um, and assigning back history to the characters that doesn't actually exist. But I see it as sort of like a ducky thing that he's done this before. She works in a movie, a record shop and, and he, plays he just strikes me as someone who will play with whatever is to hand so this girl that he's known forever and is uh friends with and is in love with works in a record shop therefore he's going to you know lip sync to songs when he comes to see her at the record shop and i just picture it being something that he's done over and over again to you know hundreds of different songs over the years and he just gets super into it and it's something they're used to watching and just being like okay Here's Ducky being his slightly odd self, but at least he's entertaining. I like that. I like that. I'm going to headcanon that, and then I will enjoy <laughs> that scene more. Yeah. I was looking at it as he. this was him doing some sort of grand gesture showing her that he loves her kind of thing. Ah. It's also part of why it didn't work for me. Yeah. But yeah. if this is just him being silly and doing what he's always done, I'm down with it. Yeah. That, yeah. If it was him trying actually to be seductive and suave and make a good impression that that would not work for me either <laughs> not so much yeah okay okay yeah I, I accept your interpretation that that i'm down with i'm good with that i just did a double fist bump in the air which i realized <laughs> afterwards that you can't see on audio so nice. that's good radio <laughs> yeah nice. exactly <laughs> Um, there is one more line that I, I want to make sure that, that I bring up because it was my favorite line in the whole entire movie, and I want to start using it in real life. Uh, in the beginning, when Andy and Ducky are walking down the hallway and, and going to class, Andy turn, looks at him and says, are you going to class today? <laughs> and Ducky says, I don't know if I'm emotionally ready. <laughs> and that gets I want really to use that for work. I am not emotionally ready to go to work today. Yes, absolutely. Hands down my favorite thing. And it's interesting to me that it's it's a ducky line since I just don't really like ducky. Um, <laughs> but that was fantastic. I mean, he did have some really great lines. He yes. just If we could take the stalker out of ducky, he would yeah. be perfect. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and like I said, that's that's the reason why I think the ending works for me even though I don't particularly like Blaine is because it gives it takes the parts of Ducky away that I didn't like and leaves the parts mm. that were fun and kooky and just enthusiastic about life and being weird and not giving a damn. Yeah. No, they give him all the good lines, though. Yeah, they really did. <laughs> they really did. Okay. Well, is there anything else that we need to talk about with Pretty in Pink that we haven't already covered? Um, oh, you did have that one great comment, and I laughed out loud when I read it in your notes on the movie, when you were talking about the two dresses that she gets, um, <laughs> the one from Iona and the one from her dad. And you wrote something like, if I recall correctly, she's going to take these two individually beautiful dresses and make one horribly ugly dress out of it. <laughs> Which is exactly what she did. <laughs> So what she did, and it wasn't how I remembered it in my head. I remembered her being some kind of brilliant fashion genius who created this gorgeous dress. And after when I was watching it again uh, the other day, I was just like, oh, 
Oh yeah, no, that's bad. <laughs> like that's yeah. that's a really ugly dress. Sorry. It so. it fits her like a nightgown. <laughs> it's basically yeah. a smock. Yes, yes, it really is. It is. Except the shoulders. The shoulder piece is quite nice. So it's obviously designed for the close-ups. Yes. Yeah. You know, they try to avoid showing her full body, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I had a hard time with that because, so again, it was, the reason I knew about that dress was because I had seen the still images of it when I was on the cruise ship watching the show. And um, I knew it was a prom thing and they showed a picture of her at the prom and my instinct was oh my god that is the ugliest dress ever <laughs> and i i knew i mean this movie's called pretty in pink i knew that it had to do with the prom and that, that was kind of a big plot point and so my expectation is going to be she's going to be the most beautiful girl there <laughs> and then i see this picture of this dress that's just awful and and so i didn't really put that together until we were going until i was watching this movie and she's getting these two absolutely gorgeous dresses that I'm like, that I would wear either one of those. Yes. Like, they're both beautiful in their own right. I love both of those pink dresses. And then I remembered that picture. <laughs> and I was like, oh, no. No, 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 no. We're going to Frankenstein this awful dress. And I don't know why they did that to her. I don't. I, I think they needed to show. I don't that they needed to show her making something. So it wasn't just that she was assembling thrift shop outfits. Like that's supposed to be the sign that she has something going for her to get her out of this sort of life of poverty. She's going to be the fashion designer and go off and do things. She's, she's to give her that sort of uh, potential future that you can see coming, but it was just a, it would have been nice if they'd given her a nicer dress to have made because the thrift. Well, they kind of make it look like together. Molly Ringwald made it. Yeah, no, yes, yes. <laughs> and when she's drawing, I was like, is that her actually sketching? Because it's a terrible drawing. So yeah. maybe it really is her. And that was another weird thing, though, with the movie watching it. Not weird. Impressive. Uh, the only person, aside from Iona, who's just timeless in her own right, in her 50s clothes or, or her punk clothes, all that is beautiful. But uh, Andy's the only one who doesn't look weird. Andy and Ducky, actually. Because the 80s clothes on everyone else in the movie are so dated. But vintage is always vintage, so it doesn't look strange. It just looks like she's wearing vintage clothes. Yeah. She's mm. One of my comments in my notes is, why do teenagers in the 80s dress like they're in their 30s? Oh, my God. Oh, we did. <laughs> oh, my God. We did. Absolutely. I Shoulder pads and the blazers and, and uh, oh, I think of the clothes that I wore and they were horrible, horrible. Very large, overlapping, angled belts over huge sweaters and, and uh, yeah, no. And everything was like something that my mom would wear, honestly. In fact, my mom would borrow my clothes. So, yeah, that that was accurate. Sad, but accurate. <laughs> Well, we have had a request from Twitter because this is a prom movie. They <laughs> want to know what we looked like at our proms. Now, AJ, you said you didn't go to prom. I didn't. Um, did, you, did your school only have one prom? You didn't do a junior, senior prom? No, they had all kinds of dances. I was a very shy, shy sweet girl in high school and I did not get asked to dances um, except for one time I was asked to 
prom by a foreign exchange student with whom I had never held a conversation uh, in <laughs> the entire course of the school year. Um, and in my recollection, I had to take retake the SATs or something the day after prom. So that was why I didn't go. But yeah, thinking about that over the last 24 hours or less than it, that may be the story I've told myself to make up for the fact that I didn't go to prom because nobody really asked me except for this one uh, foreign exchange student from Germany, I think it was, um, who I didn't know and was too awkward to say yes to. And, <laughs> and I one time I asked a boy to the turnabout dance, our heart hop, and, uh, and he said no. So I think after that, I just stopped. So I didn't go to any high school dances, none. Okay. You weren't missing much. Oh. <laughs> I will tell you that. I did go to both of my proms. I actually went to three proms because, oh. well, so I went to a very small arts. It was small at the time. It was an arts high school that was new. And so when it opened, it was only um, sixth through eighth grade. And then every year as the eighth graders got older, they right. added a class. So the eighth graders, when the school opened, became the first freshman class sure. as it became a high school. And so um, I started there my sophomore year, which was when the sophomores were the oldest people in the school. And so uh, we had a sophomore semi-formal, which I do not have photos from. And then we did do a junior prom and a senior prom. And I did not have a date for either of them, but I have pictures that I'm going to have to pull out of an actual photo album and scan them to digitize them. But I will probably tweet them and maybe link to the tweets in the show notes um, since folks are interested in, in our prom experiences. Uh, Matthew, I think you have a couple photos too. Um, I, I have a couple, none from proms, because we don't have proms. <laughs> we <laughs> we Silly <Brits>. had, <laughs> at my secondary school, age 16, we had a leavers ball, so I have a picture of me um, going to that with my, my date for the evening was a young lady called Teresa. And I'd said to her, what, what color dress are you wearing? And she said, oh, I'm wearing a blue dress. So I got a nice suit, dark shirt, and a blue tie, a dark blue tie. Uh-huh. And I hadn't checked what sort of blue dress she was wearing, and she's got a sky blue dress on. Uh. So there's nothing about us that goes, despite my intent. <laughs> but you tried. I tried. Um, and then at uh, university, age 21, I went to our Leavers Ball there, uh, graduation ball, in fact, and I wore a tuxedo. So I have a picture of me in that, looking very young. <laughs> So we will be linking to them in the show notes. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> AJ, we have a big list of uh, films that Mandy hasn't seen. Is there anything you would recommend or want to see that we should be adding to that list? Well, you already have some kind of wonderful on your list. So that is definitely, um, that would top my list of recommendations of things to watch from sort of this era. It is, uh, that is fantastic. That is that is a wonderful movie and probably one of my first film crushes on a girl. So when you when you see Watts, who you saw in that that thing on your vacation, mm-hmm. Mandy, um, yeah, just picture me watching the movie and going, oh, but she's so cute the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, do you have any recommendations that are maybe not 80s teen movies? Oh, <laughs> 
<laughs> in my head, that is all you review ever. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> there are quite a lot of them, so. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm sure there's um, lots more. Uh, let's see. I Have you ever seen the movie Enchanted April? I've never heard of this movie. It is a lovely film. I am going to completely blank on who made it, but it has a very sort of merchant and ivory feel, although I don't think it's a merchant and ivory movie. Um, but it is a period piece about these uh, two London women who are very hardworking, um, sort of post it's post war. I'm going to say post World War One, but I could I could be making that up. Could be post World War II. They're just very hardworking, doing everything right, never asking for anything for themselves. And they both, uh, independently of each other, spot an advertisement in a newspaper about renting a villa in Italy and spending time in sun drenched Tuscany or something, which they can neither of them afford to do or even really dream of. And yet they manage to make it happen along with two other women. Um, and then it's the story of all of them coming to realizations about their lives and their marriages and what they want out of life, all in this gorgeous villa in Italy where everyone's sort of public facades come down. And it's a wonderfully charming movie one of the most charming movies i've ever seen okay that's i think i think that's the chap who did four weddings and a funeral ah, so i have also not seen it's it's a very uh, that i can see that because of some of the charm but because it's a period piece it has a, a very distinct feel that doesn't sort mm. of match up with the rest of his contemporary stuff richard curtis is that his name uh, i think he was the writer i think it's the director ah. um we, we shall look it up, but it sounds like a, a, it would be a good one to put on the list because I haven't seen that either. Yes. Ooh, we've never done one that neither of us have seen. Ooh, mm. okay. Well, then I'd be super <laughs> excited to see what you think of it. Um, and it has some amazing people in the cast. It's just across the board wonderful. Miranda Richardson and Polly Walker. And uh, oh, I'm drawing a blank on the gentlemen who are in it, but I need to tell you. <laughs> Jim Broadbent is in it. Joan Plowright, oh, okay. um, uh, Alfred Molina. Just it's it's got so many wonderful people. Ooh, Michael Kitchen, who is just amazing in the TV show Foils War. Uh, it's wonderfully cast. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. Awesome. Well, you're you're doing a great job of selling it. So <laughs> I think we probably will mm -hmm. put it on the list. Yay! So before we hop into our listener feedback, Matthew, there is one very important thing that we forgot to do. I'm sorry. <laughs> is there? We did not talk about the Buffy reference. No, we didn't. Do the you Buffy want to talk about the Buffy reference, Mandy? No, I think you should do it. <laughs> uh, is that because you didn't spot it, that the original, the classic Buffy is in this film? Okay, so here's the thing. I thought it was her, but I wasn't positive. Like, my first instinct when I was looking at her, I was like, is that Christy Swanson? Is, I'm not sure if that's actually Christy Swanson or not. And and I was watching it on my Amazon Fire Stick. And so when you pause on Amazon now, it, like, shows you the, the pictures of the actors who were in that scene. And I paused it there, and it didn't have her. And so I just I couldn't be sure. And so I didn't want to be, like, Oh, hey guys, that's Christy Swanson. It's Buffy, and then be wrong. <laughs> Is that then, her at the end who beckons to Ducky? Yes. Oh, the yes, yeah. Yes. Yeah, of course it is. Yes. Um, so, 
I failed my duty of, of bringing up my Buffy reference during the conversation, but you guys, there it was. And they dropped it in our lap, and I still missed it. <laughs> <laughs> the, the only other film I think I've seen her in is Dude, Where's My Car? I can't Which think of anything else she, she was in. Oh, have uh, you not? Huh. Oh, I'm not sure I'm putting that on the list. I'm not sure say, you like that one. I don't think you're missing much with that one. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm not a big fan of stupid, stupid humor. And yeah. that particular combination of Sean William Scott and Ashton Kutcher is not my favorite. So Yeah. No, you can skip that. We had a couple of nice responses to our bonus Parks and Recreation pilot episode. At Steppen to My Kitchen said that she absolutely wants Mandy to watch Red Dwarf, but then again wants everyone to watch Red Dwarf. <laughs> the timing of this feedback is incredible because Matthew is currently watching Doctor Who episodes for our upcoming uh, Doctor Who shows, and he keeps talking about Red Dwarf. <laughs> like, every day <laughs> yeah. or every other day, I get comments from Matthew about Red Dwarf. You know how I wanted you to watch Red Dwarf? Well, blah, 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 blah. And, and so I, I would say that this is probably going to come up sometime in 2018. Yeah. And the the big sell that we found for Red Dwarf is, of course, there are only six episodes to every season. So it's really easy to actually watch them. And we, and we could probably do, I think, three seasons per episode. Per oh, that would be great. Episode. Yeah, that would be mm. great. So I, I think, yeah. you know, look for that in 2018, you guys. We also heard from at IUGirlJen, who said she's excited to introduce a co-worker to Eloquent Gushing and PC Deprived. The Parks and Rec episode is perfect because we work for the government in Indiana. That's amazing. And and obviously the headcanon now is it's exactly like the show because that's filmed like a documentary. So it's 100% accurate. Jen probably is, is April, I would imagine. But her co-worker is clearly going to be Ron. <laughs> Jen, you'll have to let us know uh, if your coworker, what your coworker thought of, of that episode. Uh, the final piece of feedback we have is from at Gypsy Book Nerd about our episode on the Dark Knight. And she just wanted to tell Matthew that his Batman impression in that episode is fantastic and she loved it. <laughs> now, I think she was also asking for me to do spike impressions, but in my accent to differentiate what the London and the Southern accents would be like. Yes, I think we'll have to do a, a, a bonus episode that's just Matthew doing different characters that people like. <laughs> the, I, you know what? I am down for that. Let's let's do that. <laughs> this is on, on top of last week where I was doing my Southern accents for Aaron. <laughs> oh. oh, my. Okay. Well, golly, y'all. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Mandy doesn't laugh when I do do impressions of Southerners. <laughs> I do. I just do it silently and internally while I'm screaming. <laughs> well, if you want to get in touch and give us your comments on this or any other movie we've discussed, you can use the hashtag PC Deprived on Twitter. And we also have a brand new way for you to get in touch with us this week. We've had several folks tell us that while they're listening, they talk back to us. And so I wanted to give you guys a way to actually talk to us. So if you want to leave a voice recorded message, you can go to speakpipe.com slash eloquent gushing and record a message that'll be sent to us. And we will link to that in the show notes in case you don't remember what that is. You can also find each of us on Twitter. I'm at Mandy Kay. And I'm at Matthew Vose. AJ, why don't you tell us how people can find you out in the world? 
I'm on Facebook as Amy Jo Cousins, and I'm on Twitter as at underscore AJ Cousins, because I'm an idiot and didn't know that starting your handle with an <laughs> underscore was a terrible strategy when I joined Twitter. So now I'm just too lazy to change it. But I'm there constantly. Yes. Constantly retweeting. You show up in my feed all the time. But it's great because I see things that I wouldn't ordinarily see. <laughs> it's my favorite procrastination method. Me <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. And my water cooler because, you know, as a writer, I work at home. So if I'm not on Twitter or Facebook, I don't get to talk to anybody. So. Yeah, that's exactly what I use it for, to, to scratch the itch of things I can't discuss with other people. <laughs> <laughs> Pop Culture Deprived is, of course, 100% funded by listeners like you uh, through our Patreon page. Anything you can give, even $1 a month, it gives access to exclusive content and helps to support the network so we can develop new shows. To find out more, please visit us at patreon.com slash eloquentgushing. If you want to keep up to date with the latest news and announcements, remember to subscribe to the weekly newsletter. The link for that is on eloquentgushing.com. And we talk about the upcoming episodes for each week. And we have announcements, polls, different things in each issue as well. We'll be back next week with another episode of Pop Culturally Deprived, where we'll talk about Clue with Lauren Shippen, the creator of The Bright Sessions. Until next time, I'm Mandy Kay. And we don't have a candy machine in the boys' room. Pop Culturally Deprived is an Eloquent Gushing production. For more information, visit eloquentgushing.com or find us on Twitter at Eloquent Gushing.